Hello and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast. This week a loyal listener pointed out to me that I was one week ahead on the lessons. As I went back to see what happened, I found that the week of general conference was supposed to be a two-week lesson. I got so excited that I just jumped to the next lesson. So if you listened to last week's podcast, you're ahead one week. In order to get back on track, here's the podcast I recorded last week with a few small additions. I do apologize, but I promise to deliver an extraordinary podcast next week. This week we're reading Mormon chapters 1 through 6. Not even 300 years had passed away that wickedness prevailed on the whole earth. I was shocked, as Mormon tells us, about what's happening. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. And the whole face of the land had become covered with buildings, and the people were as numerous almost as the sands of the sea. And it came to pass that there began to be wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the two parties were Nephites and Lamanites. Does this sound familiar to you at all? It reminded me so much of what's happening today. A war between two parties. But at this point, Mormon was 15 years old. Chapter 1, verse 15 through 17 says, And I, being 15 years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. And I did endeavor to preach unto the people, but my mouth was shut, and I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God, and the beloved disciples were taken away from the land because of their iniquities. But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. Why would he use the word sober? I looked up the definition in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. The reason I use this is because I wanted to know the definition when it was translated by Joseph Smith. As you know, definitions can change over time. So in 1828, sober meant temperate in the use of spirituous liquors, habitually temperate, to live a righteous and godly life, not mad or insane, not wild, visionary, or heated with passion. That's interesting. What I gained from this was that he was not addicted to anything and was godly, calm, and humble. Now, does that describe any 15-year-old that you know today? I have a son in middle school, and the stories he tells me about the teenagers nowadays astonishes me. I'm beginning to think that that age group has lost all common sense they learned as children. My parents used to say of us as teenagers that our brains oozed out onto our pillows at night as we slept because of all the dumb things we did. And yet, here we have Mormon, a 15-year-old with a sober mind. But not just that, what he experienced is incredible. It's what we all seek to experience. 
he was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. What's it like to taste of the goodness of Jesus? King Benjamin used this same analogy in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, And again I say unto you, as I have said unto you before, that as you have come to the knowledge and the glory of God, or if ye have known of his goodness and have tasted of his love, and have received a remission of your sins, which causeth such exceedingly great joy in your soul, even so, I would that you should remember and always retain in your remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even unto the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfast in the faith of that which is to come, which is spoken by the mouth of an angel." When Alma was speaking to his son Helaman, he used the same word. In Alma, chapter 36, verse 24 through 26, it says, Yea, and from that time, even until now, I have labored without ceasing, that I might bring souls unto repentance, that I might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which I did taste, and that they might also be born of God and filled with the Holy Ghost. Yea, and now behold, O my son, the Lord doth give me exceedingly great joy in the fruits of my labors. For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, behold, many have been born of God, and have tasted as I have tasted, and have seen as I have seen. Therefore they do know of these things which I have spoken, as I do know, and the knowledge which I have, is of God. Exceeding joy of which I did taste. That description is the same one Lehi used in describing the fruit in his vision of the tree of life. See if this sounds familiar to you. First Nephi chapter 8 verse 12. As I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. When Nephi saw the vision, he tells us that the tree of life represented the love of God. So what do all these men's description of this experience have in common? They all describe it as tasting of exceeding joy. It's fascinating that in their experiences, when they know how much God loves them, they can taste the joy. I've had some amazing food in my life, but none that I could even come close to describing as bringing exceeding joy. As we hear about such things, two questions arise. Number one, what does it taste like? And number two, what shall I do that I may partake? In answer to the second question, we find the first step in the book of Enos as he recounts his journey to tasting of God's exceeding joy. Enos chapter 1 verse 4 says, And my soul did hunger, and I knelt before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him, 
And when the night came, I did still raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. I don't believe that we will be ready to taste of God's goodness and love until our soul hungers, as Enos's did. We might have a desire to know him, a yearning to be close to him. And if these desires are sincere, they will drive us to action. Which is the answer to the first question, what does it taste like? Well, if your soul hungers and you begin to walk that path to God and Jesus, it won't take long until you are taste of their goodness and your joy will be exceedingly full. When we were talking about this topic in our Sunday school class last week, two really good comments were made. One person said, Tasting something is a very personal experience. People have all sorts of different tastes. Some people like one thing and others don't. I like some things that other people think is disgusting. That's why this experience is so personal. And our taste will change over time. I like things now that I did not enjoy at all when I was a kid. But as we grow and mature, the things that we hunger for or desire will change. Another person suggested, All of our other senses are easily describable. What we see, what we hear, what we feel. But taste is one of the most difficult to describe. But to dive a little deeper into the second question, what shall we do that I may partake, is one of soul-searching depth. Perhaps I can answer the question with an observation. It seems to me that most of us don't need God because we would prefer to be God. Let me say that again. It seems to me that most of us don't need God because we would prefer to be God. What I mean by that is for the most part, we tend to act as we believe God does. Condemning those who don't see as we do and forgiving those that we deem worthy. Is this what we believe God is like? You may initially say no, but what about those who don't agree with your political views? Or the guy that cut you off the other day? You had some colorful expletives to share with him. What about rioters, rapists, pedophiles, murderers, terrorists? What should be their fate? Blissful heaven or fiery hell? Let's use an analogy that might help us see a little clearer. If you are a parent of at least two children, I want you to imagine that you had to make a choice. You must choose which of your children would go to heaven and which one would go to hell. One has to go to each place, and you have to make a decision. What will it be? They've both made mistakes, and if they are teenagers... They have both driven you to insanity at some point, so make a choice. The reality is that this choice is impossible. 
No loving parent would ever damn a child to hell, no matter how bad they are. So why would we assume that God would? But what about those evil people in the world, you cry out? Well, God loves them too. And God knows their heart. He also knows of the horrific things that they went through to shape who they have become. My point is, in order to taste of the unspeakable joy, we must first forgive. And second, we must love all men and women unconditionally, which means withholding judgment. We must act as God really is, not as we think he may be. How do we know that God is this way? Because Jesus was. And he said, I do those things which I saw my father do. And so must we. And that is where true, exceeding joy is found. This I testify in the name of Jesus Christ.